The last time we spoke, the British, American, and Chinese forces found themselves being pushed out of Burma. The battles of Tonggu, Prim, and Yenangyuang were absolutely devastating to the Allies. The oil fields at Yenangyuang were burnt down as the Allied forces made their way to western China and India. Stilwell and Chiang Kai-shek were experiencing some couples quarrels, and now there was literally a race to get the forces out of Burma lest they be completely annihilated and Burma would become lost permanently. Yet while all of this was occurring, there were stirrings in the Pacific. Admiral Yamamoto, ever obsessed with finding his decisive naval battle, was about to get an opportunity this week, as the Empire of the Rising Sun was turning its gaze towards Port Moresby, one of the lifelines protecting the trade routes between Australia and the United States. This episode is the Battle of the Coral Sea. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over on YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if after all that you are still hungry for some history-related content, why don't you go over to my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where you'll find a few videos going as far back as the Opium Wars of the 1800s all the way to the end of the Pacific War. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. Over in Hawaii lays a code-breaking unit formerly called the Combat Intelligence Unit, or CIU. Amongst its staff, it was nicknamed the Dungeon. After reorganization during the war, it was renamed Fleet Radio Unit Pacific, F-R-U-P-A-C, FRUPAC, but is commonly called today by the name Station Hypo and its chief was a man named Joseph Rochefort, a 40-year-old Navy commander. Rochefort was tall, dark-haired, friendly, and an aristocratic kind of man. He learned Japanese while stationed in Tokyo as a language officer in the 1920s, and he joined a small, compulsively secretive group of officers who worked in the emerging field of communications intelligence. Rochefort had a reputation of being a bit of a oddball, depicted parading around in a flamboyant red smoking jacket and slippers. Later on after the war, Rochefort acknowledged he wore these, but only because they had pockets for his pipe and tobacco pouch, and the slippers because his feet were sore from pacing around on the concrete floor for so long. He ran an oddball kind of group of very talented language officers and codebreakers, and they were left free to play on their hunches. Rank and hierarchy were not important to Station Hypo. As Jasper Holmes, a Hypo veteran, said, Not much attention was paid to uniforms or to military punctilio of any kind. Throughout the era before World War II, the field of cryptanalysis was unproven, 
Little understood and above all else, very secretive. Rochefort's team worked like mad. After Pearl Harbor, it is said Rochefort went home once every third or fourth night. Most nights he slept on a cot in his office. It is also said he kept a bucket of Benzedrine tablets at his desk, which he offered freely to all of his colleagues. Rochefort would say, I figured there were people out there getting shot at. If it should happen that it turned out to inflict some injury on my health, in the long run, so what? Now, Washington's naval headquarters were tackling the JN-25 main Japanese naval operational code. They had already cracked most of it before December of 1941. But a new JN-25B code began to come into use after December the 4th of 1941. Station Hypo was given the go-ahead to begin deciphering the new code, a momentous amount of work, 50,000 five-digit numeral groups. Yikes. By the year's end, when Nibitz took command of the fleet, Rochefort's team had made some progress, and then in January of 1942, there was a sharp increase in Japanese radio traffic in the truck area. Rochefort correctly predicted the Japanese would seize Rabal, and now the Japanese perimeter extended dangerously south where the U.S. carriers might be able to stage a trap. Admiral Nimitz was briefed each morning at 8 a.m. by his fleet intelligence officer, Lieutenant Edwin Lytton, and he received a daily briefing from Station Hypo. Nimitz told Lytton on his first day as SINCPAC, I want you to be the Admiral Nagumo of my staff. I want your every thought, every instinct, as you believe Admiral Nagumo might have them. You are to see the war, their operations, their aims, from the Japanese point of view. And keep me advised what you are thinking about, what you are doing, and what purpose, what strategy motivates your operations. If you can do this, you will give me the kind of information needed to win this war. Admiral Halsey's carrier raids on the marshals boosted Nimitz's confidence in him, and this was accompanied by an outpouring of Japanese radio traffic that fed Station Hypo. Soon Rochefort's team began to figure out key words indicating geographical areas, and soon they were predicting attacks made in March on Java and Sumatra. Then in the last week of March, the first inklings of an impending Japanese offensive against Port Moresby emerged when an intercepted message revealed that Japanese naval air units had received orders to attack a target identified as RZP. When Rochefort's team looked further into it, they revealed an operational code named MO. This alongside some Australian coast watchers in early April confirmed Japanese air patrols in the region were extending in length and density. Rochefort informed Nimitz, An offensive in the southwest Pacific is shaping up. Rochefort was asked by Admiral King what he thought the Japanese were up to, and Rochefort gave him his hunch. He said the Japanese were completing their operations in the Indian Ocean, and that the carrier group were on their way back home, but would perform an offensive into the Coral Sea, aimed most likely at the southeastern end of New Guinea. He did not think the Japanese were intending to invade Australia, 
but planning some major operation to take place after a Coral Sea offensive. Then on April the 18th, after the Doolittle raid, a ton more Japanese radio traffic emerged, and MO was identified as Port Moresby. By April the 24th, Nimitz and King were informed a large Japanese force comprising air groups and carriers would be steaming into the Coral Sea, covering the approach of separate amphibious groups which would assault Port Moresby. Nimitz at this point realized Station Hypo was producing the lion's share of the JN-25B code breaks, and he made sure to get them everything they needed to keep the code breaking pumping. On April the 22nd, Linton sat down with Nimitz and gave a report. There are many indications that the enemy will launch an offensive in the New Guinea, New Britain, Solomon area. The offensive would start very soon. The enemy force might include five carriers, one battleship, five heavy cruisers, and at least four light cruisers, 12 destroyers, and more than a dozen submarines. Perhaps 135 land-based naval bombers, 100 zeros, and over 20,000 troops. Nimitz had to make a large decision. The Japanese were superior in carrier, battleship, and shore-based strength, as the intelligence indicated. The Americans could overcome this with the knowledge of the direction the enemy was advancing and the probability of being able to detect change in the enemy's deployment. As Nimitz would put it, Accept odds in battle if necessary to contest the Japanese advance on Moresby. This meant throwing his two available carriers against the Japanese fleet and hope it prevailed. Port Moresby was simply too important to yield to the enemy. It would give the Japanese a launching platform for new attacks on air bases and port facilities in Queensland, Australia. It would also extend Japanese air search patterns all over the Coral Sea. It would allow for the buildup of forces for the planned offensive against New Caledonia, Fiji, and Samoa. Nimitz knew the Japanese had ruled out an invasion of Australia, but Moresby would allow them to cut the island continent off, basically drawing a noose around its neck. On the other hand, Port Moresby was on the outer range of airstrikes from Rabaul, and contesting its occupation would not expose Allied forces to the airstrikes suffered upon Malaya and the Dutch East Indies. Basically, for the first time in the war, a pitched sea battle with the IJN had become an acceptable risk. Admiral Nimitz got approval from Admiral King and set off for Pearl Harbor at the end of April. Task Force 17, built around Yorktown, under Admiral Frank Fletcher, would join up with Task Force 11, built around Lexington, under Rear Admiral Aubrey Jake Fitch, and make their way to the Coral Sea to intercept the Japanese invasion of Port Moresby. They would rendezvous with an Anzac cruiser force off New Hybrids under the command of Rear Admiral John C. Grace. Both Hornet and Enterprise would return to Pearl Harbor from the Doolittle Raid and try to race over to the Coral Sea by mid-May to help out. Operation MO involved an incredible amount of surface forces, carriers, amphibious landing forces, and over 150 land-based aircraft. Commander of the 4th Fleet, Fleet Admiral Shigeyoshi Inoue, retained command of the operation at his HQ in Rabaul. 
but there would be six other admirals sailing with various elements of this immense fleet. Vice Admiral Takeo Takagi, who had won a great victory at the Battle of Java Sea, would command a carrier strike force built around Shokaku and Zoikaku, while his subordinate Rear Admiral Tadachi Hara of Carrier Division 5 would exert tactical control of the two carriers. The invasion force was 10,000 IGA and IGN troops and 12 large transports. A ton of surface ships and light carrier Shoho would cover the landings. Although Port Moresby was the main objective, the Japanese also intended to invade Tulagi, which could be transformed into a small seaplane base for reconnaissance. Tulagi was set to be seized on May the 3rd and Port Moresby by May the 10th. The Operation MO plan, like so many Japanese naval campaigns, was unnecessarily complex. Forces were divided in a complex arrangement relying upon close coordination and timing, which, as you can imagine, has a tendency to unravel quickly when you walk into the enemy unexpectedly. On April the 19th, Lexington's group received new orders from Nimitz, stating, to proceed at economical speed to point of action. That being 300 nautical miles northwest of New Caledonia, where they would join up with Task Force 17 and the Anzac cruisers and destroyers of Task Force 44, i.e. Admiral Crace. By April the 29th, Lexington passed the New Hebrids, the Solomons, and entered the Coral Sea. And on May the 1st, Admiral Fletcher, a frosty Iowan, who had graduated from the Naval Academy back in 1906, took command of the task forces. His first order of business was to fuel up from the oil tankers, and for it to be done under radio silence, and by hanging back a bit out of the Japanese patrol range. Army aircraft patrols based out of Townsville, Australia, reported that Japanese units were moving down from the Bismarcks into the Eastern Solomons corroborating the fresh intelligence provided by Station Hypo that they were going to hit Tulagi. Fletcher hoped to hit the Japanese as they were invading Tulagi Beach, when they would be the most vulnerable. And on May the 3rd, the Tulagi invasion force landed unopposed. The Australian garrison had been pulled out earlier. At 7pm, Fletcher received word from the Australian Army patrols that the landings occurred and that the IGN ships were anchored off the island. So under the cover of night, Yorktown, with her escorts, raced north to launch a dawn strike on the 4th. Lexington was still fueling up, and around 100 miles south, so she was left behind. Strict radio silence was still being met. Fletcher planned to launch aircraft from which to fly directly over the island of Guadalcanal to conceal the carrier's location and to achieve complete surprise when they hit Talagi. At first light of May the 4th, 28 SBD dive bombers, 12 TBD torpedo bombers, and 6 Wildcats lifted up. The SPDs carried 1,000-pound bombs, and the TBDs carried the Mark 13 torpedo. The pilots pulled up to an altitude of 19,000 feet, and when they got past Guadalcanal, they thought they saw the powerful IGN fleet, so they spread out. Their ship recognition training had failed them. What they thought they saw was a bunch of light cruisers, two destroyers, a seaplane tender, five troop ships, and a few gunboats, was actually just a mine layer, some minesweepers, a small transport, two destroyers, and a few landing barges. 
As noted by the naval historian Samuel Elliott Morrison, As usual throughout the war, the pilots overestimated what they saw. All of their swans were geese, and all of their geese, ducks, or goslings. The raid was certainly a surprise for the Japanese, who had zero air cover, and they were pretty much defenseless. You see, as soon as the Talagi landings were made, their escort had simply left. The IGN ships threw up what anti-aircraft fire they could, but no American planes in the first wave were hit. The torpedo planes following behind the dive bombers attacked without a single hit being made. A second wave was launched, and a third wave of 21 dive bombers soon followed. The raid overall was very disappointing. The destroyer Kikuzuki was damaged, three minesweepers and four landing barges were sunk, and a fourth strike by four Wildcat fighters was much more successful than the rest, strafing the five Type 97 flying boats on Tulagi until they were all destroyed. But it was hardly worth for the price of revealing that there were American carriers in the area. Admiral Fletcher got the hell out of Dodge that night, withdrawing southeast as Admiral Hara, with his two carriers refueling 350 miles north, got word of the attack on Tulagi. Admiral Hara quickly cut the fueling hoses, tossed them over the side of Shokaku and Zoikaku, and raced down into the eastern Solomons. Admiral Oritomo Goto, whose Port Moresby invasion force had been sailing from Rabal, ordered the smaller carrier Shoho to part ways to help with the hunt for the enemy. Luckily for the Yorktown, the IGN forces did not arrive soon enough to catch her as she withdrew further south and joined up with Lexington around 8.16am on May the 5th, this being around 320 nautical miles south of Guadalcanal. The task forces spread out in a circular formation and Fletcher, who retained overall command still, signaled Admiral Fitch, who was an aviator and a veteran carrier officer that he was now to take tactical control over the two carriers during air operations. Fletcher's orders from May the 6th onwards handed to him from Nimitz were Destroy enemy ships, shipping, and aircraft at favorable opportunities in order to assist in checking further advances by enemy in the New Guinea-Solomon area. Now both the Allies and the Japanese were tipped off to another at this point, and May the 5th, 6th, and 7th would be the most confusing interlude of opposing carrier groups hunting each other and failing to do so that you have ever seen. Seriously, if you do have a moment, Google a battle map on the operation of the Battle of the Coral Sea. You will get to see one of the most confusing and chaotic bunches of lines going everywhere. It is absolutely nuts. Bad weather, erroneous scouting reports, imprecise intelligence, and hell, just bad luck, will play out for both sides. Commander Linton called the five-day battle a, quote, a deadly round of blind man's buff. They all knew carriers were a weapon suited to hit and run. The carriers themselves were extremely vulnerable, but could inflict heavy punishment on an enemy from long range if they could find him and strike him first, that is. The analogy I like most about this situation of warfare between carriers is that of sucker punching. 
If you get the first hit in, perhaps you end the enemy's capability at the offset of battle. If not, it turns into a boxing match. Both sides were tossing scouts into the air, frantically searching for another. Many of these scout pilots flying through very bad weather would see just about any ship, whether it's a destroyer or a transport, and they might report that they saw a carrier. And it's going to get really confusing. On May the 5th, Fletcher learned from radio intelligence that Japanese carriers were going to move into position for the Port Moresby landings at 10 a.m. This gave him the warning he needed to run south, narrowly missing Admiral Takaki's air search patrol. By the end of May the 6th, it was clear the Port Moresby invasion force would advance around the eastern end of New Guinea, via the Jomard Passage on either May the 7th or May the 8th. With this hard intelligence in hand, Fletcher took the task force northwest to take a position to launch a strike on the IGN carriers he presumed would be covering the invasion party. Curiously, Fletcher chose to detach three cruisers and three destroyers from Admiral Crace and send them into the Jamard Passage to oppose the invasion force. The decision was controversial as by this point in the war, the Allies knew full well unprotected surface ships were basically sitting ducks for enemy aircraft. Not to mention, this decision was stripping the US carriers from a large part of their anti-aircraft screening defense. And you know what, if any of you guys out there play World of Warships, like I do, there is nothing more infuriating than when you're playing CV and you have your escorts abandon you. Those of you who know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. Anyways, Fletcher's reasoning was that he was willing to run the risk, rather than allow the Japanese troops an unopposed landing on Moresby. Fletcher assumed the IGN carriers were several hundred miles north, when in fact they were east on his starboard flank in the Coral Sea. Admiral Takagi had ordered Admiral Hara to make a run south of the Solomons to destroy the U.S. carriers, and if he had been luckier, he might have sucker-punched both Yorktown and Lexington at this point. But, Harris scouts had mistakenly reported the U.S. carriers on a bearing of 190 degrees due south, indicating they were deep in the Coral Sea, nowhere near the invasion route's path. So on the night of May the 6th, the two mutually oblivious fleets passed within seven nautical miles of another, each chasing in the wrong direction. Admiral Crace's detached force would not run into the invasion force as they had been turned back towards Rabaul, but would be met by some high-level bombing attacks and torpedo attacks on the afternoon of May the 7th. The Japanese pilots who hit them claimed they had sunk the battleship California and damaged a British Warspite-class ship, and perhaps a unknown cruiser. In truth, Crace's ships had dodged an estimated 100 bombs and torpedoes without taking a single hit, but the U.S. cruiser Chicago suffered fatalities from strafing attacks. To make matters even worse, the ships were then attacked by three of Douglas MacArthur's B-26s who mistook them as IGN vessels. As Admiral Crace put it, Fortunately, their bombing, in comparison with the Japanese, a few minutes earlier was disgraceful. At 8.15 a.m., Fletcher got word from Lieutenant John Nielsen of the scouting VB-5. 
two carriers, and four heavy cruisers near the Jomard Passage, northeast of Misima Island. A quick glance at their charts indicated this to be 175 miles northwest, within striking range. Fletcher did not hesitate. He ordered a full Monty, eight Wildcats, 53 SPD dive bombers, and 22 TBD torpedo bombers to lift off, and they did so at 9.25 a.m. for Lexington and 9.45 for the Yorktown. As the airborne armada was flying over the Luisiadas archipelago, Lieutenant Nielsen landed back on Yorktown, and as soon as he got out of his cockpit, he denied seeing any aircraft carriers, and that he had only seen two cruisers and two destroyers. Confronted with his contact report, the red-faced pilot exclaimed he had made a coding error in transmission. Oops. It was an innocent mistake, perhaps, but... Boy, oh boy, what a costly one. Yorktown and Lexington had tossed a haymaker with an unknown IGN carrier force scurrying about. Admiral Fletcher lost his shit. Young man, do you know what you have done? You have just cost the United States two carriers. Admiral Fletcher briefly considered recalling the strike, but elected to allow it to press on in the hopes of destroying the invasion force itself, which might be in the same area. At 10.22 a.m., a new sighting was received from General MacArthur's HQ. An army of B-17s spotted a carrier and several escorts only 35 miles southeast of the first contact. Fletcher immediately radioed a course correction to the flight leaders, and as it happened, Lieutenant Commander Weldon Hamilton from Lexington, bombing Squadron No. 2, already spotted the first IGN carrier in the vicinity, exclaiming, I see one flat-top bastard. That flat-top was the escort carrier Shohu, accompanied by four cruisers and a destroyer. It was the vanguard, covering force for the invasion force led by Admiral Goto. Goto's lookouts saw the American planes approaching on her starboard bow, and Shoho made a hard turn to port at 11.07 a.m. The carrier had only three fighters, and they were clothes, not zeros to boot. Commander William Alt of Lexington led the first attack of three SBDs armed with 500-pound bombs. As they dive-bombed, Shoho's hard turn to port spoiled their aim, with each bomb falling into the sea, narrowly missing her. A few minutes later, 10 SBDs of Lieutenant Commander Robert Dickens, scouting two, dove from 12.5 thousand feet, pursued by two clothes. The Shoho continued her hard port, coming a full circle as the 10 SBDs each in turn dropped their bombs, all missing. Then, 15 other SPDs with 1,000-pound bombs made their rolling dives. As Commander Hamilton put it, The Jap was exactly downwind as I nosed down, simplifying my problem tremendously. My bomb, which was the first 1,000-pounder to hit, struck in the middle of the flight deck's width, just abaft midships. As I looked back, the entire after portion of the flight deck was ablaze and pouring forth heavy black smoke. 
A second bomb struck center line aft near Shoho's elevator, setting off secondary explosions on her hangar deck. Hamilton turned back to have a look, recalling, The ship was a flaming wreckage, rent by tremendous explosions, slow to nearly stopping, a spectacular and convincing pageant of destruction. Shoho's fate was sealed by two hits. But the American pilots were not done with her. Lexington's Torpedo Squadron 2, led by Lieutenant Commander James Brett, approaching from the southwest and with his fellow TBDs, made an anvil attack, dropping torpedoes on both bows simultaneously, so the Shoho had no hope to avoid both. Five torpedoes dropped from an altitude of just a hundred feet, smashed into Shoho's hulls, detonating beneath her waterline. Two on her starboard side and three in her port. Yorktown's air group arrived over Shoho around 11.30 a.m. and 17 SBDs dive-bombed adding another 5 to 6 1,000-pounder hits as the TBDs landed another 2 to 5 torpedoes in her hull. The Shoho blew apart and sank. Lieutenant Commander Stroop, the flag secretary to Admiral Fitch, recalled, It was a very successful attack. Except that we had an overkill on the carrier. Looking back on this, it was too bad that the attack hadn't been better coordinated and some of the force spreading around the other ships. But this being our first battle of that kind, everybody went after the big prize. And they sank this rather soft carrier very quickly. Captain Aizawa ordered the Shoho abandoned in the last moments before she sank. A quarter of her crew leapt into the water. 203 would survive. 631 were killed in explosions or trapped inside the ship as she sank. Admiral Inoue, monitoring the events from his HQ in Rabal, was fearful of the invasion convoy heading for Port Moresby. He ordered them to turn around and retreat north, abandoning the MO operation for just the moment. Until the American carriers were destroyed, Inoue did not want to risk the safety of his invasion force. 200 miles to the east, the Shokaku and Suikaku both duplicated Fletcher's error of launching an all-out attack on a secondary target based on some very flawed scouting reports. At 7.22 a.m., a cruiser scout plane reported seeing a U.S. carrier 163 miles due south of the two IGN carriers. The Japanese assumed they had found the USS Saratoga, the only carrier that they thought could be in this theater. Thus, Admiral Takagi and Admiral Hara sent a massive air attack. 36 Valdive bombers, 24 Kate torpedo bombers, and 18 Zero fighters took off to hit what was an oil tanker named Nisio and the US destroyer Sims. After the aircraft departed, a new contact report arrived stating that that scout had just found two U.S. carriers, much to Admiral Hara's shock. Apparently, they were 288 miles to the northwest, the opposite direction of the other contact report. Admiral Hara could not simply reroute his strike and risk the garbled transmission. Japanese radios were not perfect after all at this time. So he allowed the first strike to continue while he motioned the two carriers to move north in a striking range of the second report. We will join the battle with the enemy in the west after we have attacked to the south. 
Upon learning that this carrier in the south was in fact an oiler and a destroyer, Admiral Hara quickly radioed an urgent recall order. Hara hoped there would be time to recover enough planes to refuel and send them northwest. At 10.38 a.m., that very poor oiler and destroyer were without any air cover, but the Japanese pilots did not attack right away, because it was very apparent to them this was not a primary target. Instead, the squadrons fanned out to look for better targets, but having found none, a few VALs dive-bombed the oiler and destroyer at their leisurely pace. Sims was smashed with three hits, breaking her in half as she went down killing 178 of her 192 crew. The oiler Nisio was hit over seven times, turning into a funeral pyre. News of the attack reached Fletcher, and he was shocked. He had just sent a wave of aircraft northwest, but the Japanese had attacked an oiler and destroyer to the southeast. Between 12.45 and 1.15 p.m., the U.S. aircraft returning having lost three SPDs were refueled and rearmed by 2.20 p.m. Fletcher had a decision to make. He could make a sortie against the Moresby invasion force. It was still in range. But instead, he elected to not launch a second strike until he knew precisely where those Japanese carriers were. As the night came, Fletcher took the force southwest to await dawn of the next day to recommence actions. The American pilots were not trained for night operations. As Fletcher would say later on, Insufficient daylight for an attack following an extensive search. The Americans would keep some cap up, but everything else would be deck bound. The Japanese were much bolder. At 4.15 p.m., with the new contact report in hand, Admiral Hara chose to roll the dice on a late-day strike. Hara launched 12 vowels and 15 kates from Shokaku, with orders to fly 277 degrees at a range of 280 nautical miles to search for the American carriers. The American task force was about 170 miles west, and those planes apparently flew right over them, failing to spot the task force. As the Japanese aircraft turned around, trying to home in on their own carrier's homing signals, the U.S. newly installed radar tracked them as a group of wildcats tried to intercept. They closed in at 6.15 p.m., right as the sunlight faded, and eight kates and one vowel were shot down at the price of three wildcats. It was the war's earliest demonstration of the game-changing potential of radar. After nightfall, while most of the American aircraft were aboard, a new formation of planes arrived over the task force. Their navigation lights were on, indicating that they intended to land, but many observers noted something was weird. Captain Sherman of Lexington counted nine planes and they were flying down Yorktown's port side, a counterclockwise approach, the reverse of a traditional American landing. Then suddenly one of the destroyers opened fire, and a voice on Lexington's radio to all the ships demanded to hold fire, but the captain of that destroyer replied, I know Japanese planes when I see them. The night sky was lit up with anti-aircraft fire, but there was still a few cap in the air who radioed in frantically. What are you shooting at me for? What have I done now? 
The intruding aircraft and the U.S. task force doused their lights as the aircraft broke for cloud cover to get away. It would not be the last time in the war that confused Japanese pilots would attempt to land on an American aircraft carrier. Yes, this is one of the most chaotic and confusing battles of the war. The American radar operators on Lexington tracked the enemy planes on their flight due east where it looked like they were circling only 30 miles away. Could the Japanese carriers be that close, they thought. The intelligence unit tuned into the Japanese flight frequency and overheard the carriers communicating with the pilots in plain Japanese. Hara's gambit was a complete debacle. 21 out of his 27 planes failed to return. Nine had been shot down in aerial combat, 12 were lost at sea, and none of the air crews were rescued. The pilots who did return reported to have sighted U.S. carriers about 50 to 60 miles due east. As the night settled in, both sides prepared for a battle at dawn. Admiral Takagi accepted Hara's proposal that the Japanese task force should take a northern course and concentrate on morning search flights towards the south. For the Americans, the next day saw a blazing sunrise with a nearly cloudless sky. A beautiful morning, to be sure, but one that provided zero cover. The Japanese, however, further north, had much dirtier weather in which to conceal themselves. As soon as light was sufficient, the Lexington launched 18 scouts to search in all directions. At 8.20 a.m., Lieutenant Joseph Smith, who had flown northeast, radioed in. Two carriers... Four heavy cruisers, many destroyers, steering 120 degrees, 20 knots. The position was 175 miles away. The two U.S. carriers quickly turned into the wind, and the first aircraft were launched at 9.07 a.m. Half an hour later, 75 aircraft were sent to hit the Japanese. 39 SPD dive bombers, 29 TBD torpedo bombers, and 15 Wildcat fighters. As the American Air Armada flew north, the Yorktown and Lexington groups grew further and further apart, eventually losing sight of each other. Likewise, the different planes of the Armada began to do the same thing. As they flew at different speeds and altitudes, they became more and more separated. The dive bombers needed a higher altitude of 15,000 feet, but the torpedo planes lugged heavy fish. They could not spare the fuel to climb so high. Soon, they were all drifting miles apart. The SPDs and Wildcats were the first to spot the Japanese carriers at 10.32 a.m. The carriers were around 5 miles apart, heading southwards at a speed of 25 knots. The American wave circled, allowing the TBDs to catch up, causing a 25-minute delay. In accordance with tactical doctrine, of course. But it was quite a detrimental decision, as the Japanese carriers took the opportunity to launch more Zeros for CAP and Zoikaku slipped away under the cover of a black squall. One SPD pilot went on to say, This loss of initiative was more costly than any advantage gained by coordinated attack. The U.S. planes lumbered onto the scene at 10.57 a.m., fanning out to make an anvil approach against Shokaku. The TBD's lacked Wildcat Escort made an awkward torpedo drop at ranges of a quarter to a third of a mile, scoring zero hits. The SPDs made their dives hurtling to 8,000 feet as their bomb sights and windshields fogged up, nearly blinding them. 
The first seven SBDs each missed, but another 17 SBDs were circling around to take up a better diving position. As those SBDs plummeted towards Shokaku under intense zero fire, they managed to plant two bombs. They both hit the flight deck, one fore and one aft. Lieutenant John Powers was one of the pilots who landed a hit, dropping it a thousand feet before release, killing himself with the explosion he had made, which hit Shokaku's starboard side. Lieutenant John Powers traded his life and that of his co-pilot to remove the possibility of missing the target and would be awarded posthumously the Medal of Honor. Maintenance officer Hachiro Miyashita on the Shokaku was below deck in a machine shop as the blast ignited secondary explosions wiping out the machine and maintenance facilities killing dozens of men. Miyashita climbed a ladder to the flight deck just in time to see Powers bomb hit. 108 men would die and 40 wounded because of those two hits. Shokaku's wounds meant she was no longer fit to conduct flight operations and her aircraft would now have to land on Zoikaku. Despite this, her wounds were not mortal. Her damage control teams managed to subdue the fires. She received no torpedo hits, so she was not flooding. She could make her way out at about 30 knots. Her captain requested permission to withdraw from battle, and this was granted by 1210 as she retreated towards truck with two destroyers as escort. Lexington's air group were frustrated. Their planes arrived at the scene in small formations, separated by intervals of 5 to 10 minutes. Three Wildcats and nine SPDs failed to even find the enemy and had to turn back. As Commander Bill Alt was turned back, he caught sight of both Japanese carriers through a break in the fog and rain, and he was able to muster four SPDs and 11 TBDs and six Wildcats to attack. One of Lexington's pilots, Lieutenant Gaylor, said of the weather, Big towering columns of rain clouds, sort of like pillars. You'd go around them, and all of a sudden you'd see the carrier. Here he is, and there he's gone. It was such an incredibly confusing, mixed up, screwed up situation. Poor visibility, and people yelling on the radio. The Zeros attacked them from every direction, as the Wildcats tried to fight them off. Before the Lexington group could organize themselves, the Overcast moved back in, and it hid the enemy fleet from view. Commander Alt began a box search and found the wounded Shokaku 20 miles west and set upon it with three SBD wingmen. The four SBDs dived and managed to score a hit on Shokaku's starboard side of the flight deck. The rest of Lexington's planes followed this up, believing they had scored five torpedo hits. But it would be later confirmed, none hit. Or if they did, they certainly did not detonate. Now Task Force 17 was spread out like a worm on a hook, and the crews of the carriers knew they would soon come under heavy air attack. Yorktown's radio room intercepted a contact transmitted by Warrant Officer Kenzo Kano at 8.28 a.m., just a few minutes after the U.S. scouts found the Japanese carriers. Have sighted enemy carriers. Location of enemy carriers, 205 degrees and 235 miles from your position. Course, 170 degrees. Speed, 16 knots. Admiral Hara sent 69 aircraft as the Americans turned to port into the wind to launch and recover aircraft, but the destroyers and cruisers continued 20 knots northeast towards the enemy. 
Captain Sherman deduced that the Japanese carriers had launched their planes at about the same time as they had, and that the two air groups would pass one over another, en route, and that the Japanese would attack Task Force 17 at around 11 a.m. He thought it likely both airstrikes would sink the other's carriers, leaving all surviving planes marooned in the air. Sherman explained all of this to Stanley Johnston while observing on the bridge. He used this boxing metaphor. Each aircraft carrier was a fighter, with a long reach and a strong punch, and also a glass chin. I feel that at the present time, an air attack group cannot be stopped. It's likely that the position will be similar to that of two boxers, both swinging a knockout punch at the same time and both connecting. The returned SBD scouts quickly refueled and were sent back up to patrol, which put them directly in the path of incoming torpedo bombers. American radar picked up the incoming Japanese aircraft by 10.55 a.m., indicating them to be about 68 miles away. Lexington's fighter director believed the attack would be at around 10,000 feet, so he made sure the 17 Wildcats performing cap would be above 10,000 feet, flying in the direction of the enemy to pounce upon them. Quite a few SBDs were also assigned to a patrol at 2,000 feet to look out for submarines and intercept possible torpedo bombers. Five Lexington fighters engaged the Japanese Air Armada at a distance of 20 miles, finding them at around 10 to 13,000 feet altitude. As the American fighters engaged the enemy, they sent word back to the U.S. carriers warning them of the incoming formations. There was 15 miles to go, but the Japanese formations were outmaneuvering the American fighters. Lexington's lookouts began to see the aircraft of the enemy at around 11.13 a.m., the torpedo bombers fanned out and approached from two directions while the dive bombers soared overhead and performed rolling dives. Lexington's engines surged as the ship accelerated and her deck sloped steeply to port. The combined anti-aircraft guns of the task force blasted at the invaders, prompting Lieutenant Commander Shigikazu Shimazaki to recall, when we attacked the enemy carriers, we ran into a virtual wall of anti-aircraft fire. The carriers and their supporting ships blackened the sky with exploding shells and tracers. It seemed impossible that we could survive our bombing and torpedo runs through such incredible defenses. Our Zeros and enemy Wildcats spun, dove, and climbed in the midst of our formations. Burning and shattered planes on both sides plunged from the skies. Shimizaki's Kates approached Lexington's port beam at around 4,000 feet and took an anvil pattern until they were 10,000 yards when they dropped their Type 91 torpedoes. As the torpedoes raced at the carrier, Val dive bombers were streaking down in near vertical dives, each releasing their bombs at around 1,500 feet. Most of the bombs fell astern and several more fell close abeam, each a near miss marked by a giant waterspout. One 242-kilogram heavy explosive bomb struck Lexington Port near her forward 5-inch gun gallery, wiping out an entire Marine gun crew. Another hit Lexington's smoke funnel high on her port side, killing several gunners along the catwalks. A second wave of torpedo bombers dropped their bombs a thousand yards to Lexington's port, making a dozen fish converging on the carrier. Captain Sherman knew they could not dodge them all. 
An officer on the navigation bridge screamed. Don't change course, captains. There's a torpedo on each side of us running parallel. So Captain Sherman held course, and many torpedoes passed around her until 11.20 a.m., when two smashed into her port side, forward and amidship. The entire hull lurched and shuddered, tossing men from their feet. One of the blasts punctured the port aviation gasoline tanks, causing internal explosions. The sea around Lexington was littered with burning debris and downed airplanes. By 11.45 a.m., it seemed like Lexington's control team had the situation at hand, finally. Lexington was listing at 7 degrees, but compartments were closed to counterbalance her. Her fires were put out by fomite, and by noon, there was no more smoke. Lexington seemed capable of fighting off another enemy attack, but to the dismay of the control teams, there was a large fuel leak and gas was creeping through many of her compartments. At 12.47, a tremendous explosion rocked the ship and it became an inferno. Firefighting crews went to work again, but the water pressure from the hoses failed, and soon they only had chemical extinguishers to work with. More explosions began to ripple in the ship and the power was cut. The extinguishers soon ran out. By 3.25 p.m., the fires were unmanageable. She began to list again. By 5.07 p.m., Admiral Fitch leaned over the balcony, and he said to the crew, Let's get the boys off the ship. At 6.30 p.m., the torpedo warheads and bombs on the hangar decks exploded from the high temperature, and debris splashed into the sea for hundreds of feet all around. The surviving men were picked up by cruisers and destroyers as Fletcher ordered the Lexington scuttled. The destroyer Phelps fired eight torpedoes of which four detonated, sending Lexington to the bottom, with the bodies of hundreds of her crew. The smaller and more maneuverable Yorktown had dodged eight torpedoes and an estimated dozen bombs. Captain Elliot Buckmaster was taking his ship hard to starboard and hard to port, zigzagging as best as he could. The violent turns at 30 knots caused the ship to roll steeply while crew members held on to whatever they could to avoid slipping across the deck. Yorktown took a hit from a Val dive bomber which struck near her island and went right through her flight deck leaving a 14-inch hole in the steel plate. It had passed through her ready room, hangar deck, second deck, and third deck, and then finally detonated deep in the ship's aviation storeroom on the fourth deck. One crew described the blast. Raising the whole stern of the ship at least 10 feet. 37 men were killed instantly. Many more were injured. Seaman Otis Kitt was assigned cleanup detail that day, and he recalled. There were parts and particles. Some ship, some ship mate. We sorted out the pieces of the ship put pieces of the crew in body bags, and put the other trash in garbage bags until the compartment was clear enough to use shovels, then fire hoses, then disinfectant and swabs, and always the sweet smell of death. And the thought crossed my mind then and many times later, where was my number? Surprisingly, the ship did not suffer much more than the initial damage. The fires were extinguished and the flight deck operations continued. The ship was able to carry on at 24 knots. 
While Lexington burned, the Yorktown kept moving in zigzags to avoid submarines and collect her air crews. When it became clear Lexington was done for, Admiral Fitch signaled Lexington's planes to come to Yorktown and land. The American aviators had claimed to have hit both Japanese carriers, but afternoon sighting reports confirmed both Japanese carriers were afloat. With Lexington gone, the Americans could not afford to lose Yorktown. And while Fletcher wanted to remain in the Coral Sea, by May the 8th, Nimitz told him to pull out. And thus, Task Force 17 turned south. Yorktown made good speed, but her internal damage was severe. She was bleeding well into a trail behind her for miles. By the early hours of May the 9th, Task Force 17 snuck out of the Coral Sea, the Japanese were likewise in a headlong retreat by the afternoon of May the 8th. Admiral Shigeyoshi concluded that there was no other choice but to cancel the Port Moresby landings as the two carriers made their way back to truck. Admiral Inoue had several respectable motives for his decision to pull out. They were low in fuel. The enemy might perform an air attack. Even if the two American carriers were knocked out, they had been seeing a lot of heavy presence of Australian army-based bombers. The Shoho was gone. Suikaku was in one piece, but the air groups had been decimated by the battle. They had 39 planes left operational, 24 of which were Zeros. Many of the best veteran aviators had been shot down or lost at sea. Admiral Yamamoto was not happy, but allowed Admiral Inoue to pull out. While simultaneously telling Admiral Takagi to hunt down and annihilate any Allied naval forces left in the vicinity, Takagi, for his part, could do little. His cruisers and destroyers were running on 20% fuel. So, for appearance sake, he launched some searches, but nothing much of worth. The Japanese could have pushed on and taken Moresby with little opposition, and many wondered why they did not. It was a strange failure of nerve for the rather bold nation that had been making calculated risks for months. Thus, the Battle of Coral Sea would go into the history books as a strategic victory for the Allies. On May the 11th, Admiral Yamamoto changed his orders and told Takaki to bring Zoikaku home, because she was going to be needed for another operation, the Midway Offensive. On May the 9th, Shokaku committed 107 bodies to the deep. Miyashita said, We covered their faces with gauze and wrapped their bodies in blankets. Then we placed a practice, non-explosive, 30-kilogram bomb between their legs in the crotch area in order to weigh down the body for burial at sea. However, after being put in the water, the caskets later broke up during the water pressure and the dead bodies floated back up to the surface. Chief Warrant Officer Frank Boo of Yorktown would never forget seeing blood handprints on white sea bags, where men stricken by bomb blast had tried to raise themselves to their feet. The corpsmen laid the dead on wire mesh stretchers, pulled sheets over their faces. The Americans lost 656 men, the Japanese 966. The Americans had only three carriers left in the Pacific, and the Yorktown was severely hurt. Admiral Nimitz did his best to boost morale. We don't know how badly he's hurt. You can bet your boots he's hurt too. Remember this. The enemy 
has got to be hurt. And his situation is not all a bed of roses. Admiral King wrote on May the 10th, At present stage of our carrier building program, we cannot afford to swap losses with this ratio. 50 Lexington planes and 16 of Yorktown were destroyed. The Japanese lost twice as many aircraft. 33 fighters, 34 patrol bombers, 5 float planes, 16 vowels, 17 kates, and an additional 30 planes went down with Shoho. It was a tactical victory for the Japanese, and a strategic victory for the Allies. Port Moresby was safe, and by proxy, so was Australia. Even General Douglas MacArthur praised the Navy of all things at this time, stating that they were the real safeguard of Australian independence. A wealth of lessons were had for the Americans. They now knew they needed to fix the fogging up of their bomb sites for their SPDs. They also knew they had to dramatically increase the number of fighters for their carrier's cap. The TBD Devastator was a disaster and needed to be replaced quickly. American air groups needed to learn how to keep tighter formations so dive bombers and torpedo bombers attacked in simultaneous and coordinated manners, as they saw the Japanese perform against them brilliantly. Over in the Imperial HQ in Tokyo, they announced that the Saratoga and Yorktown had been sunk. Although, reading a report from Admiral Hara, he surmised that he could not confirm the sinking of Yorktown. Tokyo had also announced that they had sunk an American battleship and damaged a British battleship of the Warspite class. All complete bullshit, as no Allied battleships took part. Not even any cruisers were hit. Emperor Hirohito lauded the IGN for their splendid victory, and Adolf Hitler joined in, stating, After this new defeat, the US warships will hardly dare to face the Japanese fleet again, since any US warship which accepts action with the Japanese naval forces is as good as lost. I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if after all that you are still hungry for some more Pacific War content, why don't you check my personal channel out over at the Pacific War channel over at YouTube where I have an episode talking about Nagumo's Dilemma during the Battle of Midway. Check it out, it would mean a lot to me. Japan has won a great tactical victory. America has won a great strategic victory. Who truly won the better deal? Port Moresby is saved. Australia is saved. But emboldened by their success, and believing two U.S. carriers are at the bottom of the ocean, the IJN will set out their new and next major operation soon, the Battle for Midway. <laughs>